there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. I am so glad that you're along for the ride. If you're interested in a career in marketing or social media or even magazine publishing or all of the above, then my next guest is going to be someone you're definitely going to want to pay attention to because she is the triple threat. But before I introduce you to Hope Greenberg, the co-founder of Soapbox Strategies, if you haven't already signed up for the Java Junkies Journal, that's our weekly newsletter that gives you a one-stop shop way to learn about what episodes we're going to be dropping that week on T4C, please head on over to the Time for Coffee website at time the number four coffee.org and sign up. It's all there on the homepage. Now, to the reason we are all here, grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Hope Greenberg, the co-founder at Soapbox Strategies, where Hope's passion for creatively fusing content and commerce in the publishing world is generating branded content that fuels customer interaction, loyalty, and ROI. Hope spent the first chapter of her career working at fashion magazines like Mirabella and Lucky before eventually moving into content marketing for other brands like Kate Spade, Kenneth Cole, Joe Fresh, Target, and Banana Republic. Hope, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Thank you, Andrea. Yes, I've got my venti here and I'm ready to go. What kind of venti? <sighs> Just a straight up Americano. Oh, yes. Okay. Well, that's, <laughs> that's you know, it's not just like a drip. You got something <laughs> a little fancy. Yeah. A little fancy. Okay, nice. So, Hope, you are the big cheese. You and your partner are running Soapbox Strategies. Can you give us a look inside at the world of a couple of badass entrepreneurs who are building a business and building your name and your reputation all at the same time? Sure. So we came together, we had actually met at Joe Fresh, and we really felt like we had complementary skills, very different, but very complementary skills. And I am the creative side of our business coming from a magazine, a fashion magazine background where my career was spent creating content for magazines. My interest was in taking that skill set, taking everything that I had learned over the years and translating and transferring that to working with brands to help them use content to, as you said, build their businesses, drive drive engagement, drive awareness, and, and ultimately drive sales. My business partner, Catherine, comes from a, a strategy background. She has an MBA in new marketing and technology, and she really understands how to take content and amp it up so that people are seeing it, it, it's getting out there. You can create the greatest content in the world, but if there's not a strategy behind how it's being promoted and how it's being shared, then it's just going into a vacuum. So so really, that's that's what we do. That's 
consent. And, and, and our days are spent figuring out ways to do all of this with a small team of people. So how can you give us a sense of how you structure your days? Do you have sort of a regular routine? Do you break your week into segments? Because I'm sure that there's business development in addition to the kind of management of your current clients and making sure that the strategy is being executed. I would say that our days are built around very often client status calls and in-person client meetings or our weeks are, are built around those. We have a weekly status call with every one of our clients to just check in. We create a status agenda to talk about all outstanding items of work. We also will meet at least monthly in person with all of our clients and do do a status update in person because you just really need to have that FaceTime. It's great to really connect in that way. The rest of the time in our office, I start almost every morning, probably very often still in my bed, checking all of our clients' social media platforms. We're fortunate in that I would say most of our brands, most of our clients don't have digital content emergencies, social media emergencies. <laughs> I'm not really necessarily worried about putting out fires or anything crazy that's happened overnight, but just checking engagement, checking, making sure everything's okay. Then I will spend a decent chunk of the morning creating content for whatever whatever I'm working on, whether that's social media content, website content, creating social media advertising. I'd say I try to do a lot of my writing in the morning. Um, I think I'm, I'm clearer in the morning. I will also work on our digital marketing campaigns or brand partnerships. For example, we have just launched a campaign, and I'm not sure if you guys have the same thing in DC. They're called link screens, so LED screens throughout the city. No, um, not that I'm aware of. No. So we have screens throughout all five boroughs of New York that that place advertising, that flash advertising, and they're a great, great marketing tool. They're fairly new. And we just launched a link campaign for one of our clients. So I've been working on that recently. We work with that client works with one of the top creative agencies, um, graphic design agencies in probably in the world. So we're lucky to have the creative assets from that group. And we've created a campaign around that. Another example of the kind of thing that we do, we work with a sock brand and we did a great collaboration with Barney's. I think, do you guys have a Barney's in DC? You know, I or, think there was a Barney's co-op, but right. not the, a Barney's to my knowledge. Barney's is for anybody, any Java junkie who doesn't know, Barney's is um, a great, very high-end retailer that started out in New York City. There, there are other Barney's around the country now. But we did a partnership for this sock brand with the Art Production Fund, which is a, a not-for-profit group that helps promote public art and Barney's. And we got for really well-known artists to create a sock gift box to design socks for the brand. And then um, part of the proceeds from the sock gift boxes 
go to the art production fund. So just a couple of examples of the kinds of things that we do. And then there are nights occasionally, and certainly days and weekends where we have client events. Um, one of our clients is a big shopping property in downtown Brooklyn, and we do tons of events for them. So a lot of our weekends are, are, are filled with going to events and um, posting content and covering these events on social media. So Hope, I'm as you're talking, I'm thinking about the fact that when you and I were in school, this whole aspect of marketing did not even exist. It did not exist. How did you learn it to the degree that you have now come out of the publishing world? And I recognize that Lucky was an online magazine as well. But how did you take your kind of bricks and mortar experience and complement it with this new media, new knowledge of the digital world? That's a great question. So you're right. Lucky Lucky wasn't an online magazine per se, but we were, I think, one of the first Condé Nast magazines to really build a significant online presence. So I was working on the Lucky website. So I had the advantage of learning while I was still at a print magazine, becoming familiar or more familiar with the digital space, which which I think was really helpful. And then when I decided that I wanted to leave magazines, it was a time before a lot of print editors, a lot of fashion editors were leaving. They, it, it hadn't quite, there was eventually a mass exodus, but I was a little bit before that. So I left at a time when brands were still very interested in working with former editors. They, they saw that they had a lot to bring to the table. And so I was fortunate enough to start working with brands that really trusted that, that I would get in there and, and you know, they, they knew what my experience was, but they trusted that I would get in there and figure out how to do it and how to translate that online. So one of the things that you talk about on Soapbox Strategies is the importance of storytelling. Can you give us an example, either from a current or a former client that you have, in which you took what was a discombobulated kind of mess and streamlined it into a story that you think or can actually show improved the impact and the the sales of that brand? I guess we're lucky in a way. Uh, we don't have any clients who we walked into a big mess with. I didn't um, mean to put you on the oh, spot oh, with oh, that. No, 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 <laughs> oh, not, no, not at all. But but I will say that we did have a client, we, we currently have a client who well, actually, we have a couple of clients. We who we have one who um, who had built up about eight thousand or so Instagram followers. They're they're in the home design, home decor industry, and they had about eight thousand followers. But they weren't. They didn't really have a strategy behind their social media or behind their digital storytelling when we started with them. And they really hired us to pull that together and to shore up how they were presenting themselves online in the digital space and and in particular on Instagram the platform that they wanted to focus on was Instagram and we've been working with them for about 
guess maybe about three and a half years at this point and have taken them from their original 8,000 followers to about 150,000 followers. Um, and, and that is with a combination of very targeted strategic content backed by some social media advertising, an email strategy, you know, just really a full 360 strategy for all of their digital touch points. Now, I know that you would say, I'm not saying that's the case with this client, that just looking at the numbers, that does not necessarily equate with sales, right? But yeah, that's true. But having said that, how did you develop the narrative? How did you decide like what would set this brand apart in a way that was going to translate into sales? And I'll I'll answer that question in two parts. Part one is you're right that the numbers don't tell a sales story. However, the really cool thing about digital media and social media, which is different from the print industry that I came from in the first part of my career, is that everything is measurable. So you can see, clients can see exactly what's happening. We can tell you how many people are going from an Instagram ad to your website, and then you can measure the sales from there. And you can measure the click-throughs. So you're, you're measuring awareness. You're, you're measuring traffic. You see it all. So, so that's, that's one part of it. And the second part of how did we create the brand narrative and how did we create the story? This client is a very high-end luxury brand. And we really came at it from who are we talking to? There is, you know, we have the demographics of the consumer and the consumer is a high-end luxury homeowner, but they also have a lot, at least 50% of their customers are trade. So meaning interior designers, builders, architects. So we really needed to look at who we were talking to, and then figure out a brand voice that that really would capture and and, and imagery that would really capture the the interest and the engagement of those two segments. Got it. So one of the things I want to ask you about, Hope, before we get into when you were a Java junkie at Georgetown University, is how you and other Java junkies as they decide. Maybe they've started in one line of work and they want to move into another. How they can flip the narrative on their careers. In your case, you switched from fashion magazine publishing to digital media. How did you do that? There's a point at which, and and I'll even go back before that, which is I was interested um, when I started my career in magazine publishing, I was on the business side. I was doing something creative on the business side, but what I was a merchandising editor and I was the person who traveled around the country. I don't even think, I don't even think this exists anymore. I know this job doesn't exist anymore, but I traveled around the country and did commentated, put together and commentated fashion shows and fashion seminars at retailers. So in department stores and in boutiques. 
And this was considered an added value for advertising for, for these different retailers advertising. They would send me out and I would do these events. And I loved it. It was great. But I really wanted to get into the editorial side. I wanted to be responsible for what was on the pages of magazines. And for some reason, even though it seemed logical that I was styling a fashion show so I could style a magazine story, I just was having a really hard time making the transition. And I went from being the director of a department, I was the merchandising director at Mirabella, to going all the way back. I left and decided to become a freelance stylist. And that involved me going back and being an assistant. So I went from being the director of of a department to assisting freelance stylists. And, you know, I had to be willing to live for a year or two until I started making, even getting close to what my salary had been. I had to really be willing to live in a very scrappy way to be able to afford to do that kind of thing. But I knew exactly what I wanted to do. That was really my passion. And I made that decision to, to go all the way back to the beginning because I thought that would get me to where I wanted to be. And it paid off because then I ended up having a very successful, reasonably successful career as a mm-hmm. freelance stylist. And then from there, just when I thought that was going really well, I got a call to go back to Condé Nast as an editor. So it all it all worked. So you need so I, to be able to do what the Chinese call eating bitterness. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, this transition, the transition from magazines to digital media, digital marketing was was not that same, you know, big leap back to go forward, fortunately. But I would say that it can happen. You you may really need to do that. And, and whatever it takes, if that's your passion, figure out what you need to do to be able to, to get the experience that you need to propel that new career. Absolutely. That is such great advice. So Hope, I'd like to flash back to when you were at Georgetown as an undergrad. Can you tell us what your major was and what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? Did you know? I can tell you that I was a marketing major and I did not um, have any intention of doing anything in the marketing field. I was, um, as, as you and I discussed briefly, uh, my father thought that a business degree would be a great idea, that it would be very applicable to any industry that I wanted to go into. And it's not necessarily something that I would have chosen left to my own devices. But I thought that I was potentially interested in going to work for a department store in a management training program and, and working my way through one of one of the management training programs. Or I thought I was interested in going to law school. So that was the plan. Marketing did not necessarily factor into that. But ultimately, it has served me incredibly well. And there are absolutely many things that I flash back to almost daily that I did learn in my undergraduate business classes that I that, that really served me well in what I'm doing now and even served me well when I was working in magazines. Fantastic. So what was your first job when you graduated and how did you get it? So my first job was at Harper's Bazaar and 
I met somebody, I hosted a bridal shower for a friend of mine and a friend of hers who I had never met before came to the shower and she was working at Harper's Bazaar. She was an assistant in the merchandising department, which I just described. And she was leaving to go to Sassy Magazine, which became this cult phenomenon. And the job was about to be open. And she asked me and I was just starting to look for a job. And she asked if I would be interested in talking to them. And that was that was how I got my first job. I love it. Through relationships, right? Through relationships. That said, I, I understand now that it is a lot harder to get a job than it was back then. But but certainly the networking, the relationships, and you never know who or where, who will have or where you'll be when when somebody, you know, is able to present an opportunity to you. Definitely. Actually, somebody whose episode is airing right now as we record this, this week, it's episode 40. Lauren Zander, her advice to Java Junkies is to think strategically about the people that they meet at college, because Mm. those relationships, it's not just your fellow classmates, but also your professors, can be relationships that you can leverage throughout your professional life. So I thought that was a really interesting insight into how how to build your network even while you're at college. That's incredibly true. And in fact, I have an example of that, which is that we have a client, the client I was talking about before, the luxury home client, a very good friend of mine from Georgetown, who's a writer, works with us on that account. We brought her in to that account to help us with the writing and and the content for that client. So yeah, there you go. Absolutely. So Hope, were there any extracurriculars that you were involved in while you were at Georgetown, whether it's clubs, sororities, internships, or other activities outside of classes that in hindsight, you look at and say, oh my gosh, I was really learning skills that are useful or have been useful to me over the course of my professional life. Yes, so much. And and I would say that now, and I'll get into what they were in one second, but just backing it up a little bit, I think now internships are even more targeted and interns are doing more real work because as companies have gotten smaller, and certainly at our company, this is true, as much as we think an intern can take on, that's how much we're going to give them. So interns now are really learning the ins and the outs of the business, at least in this field and at least in small companies. But for me, going even as far back as I was a high school yearbook editor, and you would be shocked at how that really has served me well. Just writing, journalism, layouts, things that that really were were sort of applicable throughout my entire career. And then in college, more specifically, Georgetown used to have a student fashion show every year. So I worked on the student fashion show and that was literally what my career became. That is so cool. Yeah, I also had an internship at a market research firm. Um, They did qualitative market research and I worked on focus groups. So I would cold call people and ask them if they would be part of the focus group and then help run the focus groups at night. And just that idea of having, it was terrifying to me in the beginning, having to just pick up the phone and cold call people. But that 
that serves you well or served me well throughout my entire life and my career, not being afraid to just pick up the phone, give your pitch, give it concisely, see what happens and convince somebody to do something, you know, really craft your pitch to be able to, to convince somebody to come and be part of a focus group. And then what else? I was, I worked at DC Superior Court it was one of the first dispute, or I think it was the second dispute resolution program in the country before there was, you know, obviously a a big push towards solving um, disputes without litigation. And I did research into the first program, which I think was in California somewhere, and then also did intake interviews with people who who potentially wanted to resolve their conflicts in this way. And that was great for really learning how to listen to somebody um, and write really fast and, you know, develop an ear for the details, which I think has served me really well. And then I also worked at an art gallery in DuPont Circle. And there I schlepped. I just dragged paintings up and down a spiral staircase. And and that just taught me the value of be willing to do anything. Because in your career, you will be asked to do things that you think, you know, maybe are not so glamorous and are not what you signed on for. But it's all part of it. Oh my goodness. What amazing and diverse experiences (laughs) you've had for sure. So Hope, one of the questions I try to ask all of the Time for Coffee guests is to share a moment, a time in your professional life when you really struggled. In some cases, people have been fired. I've been fired. In other instances, you had a really challenging boss or difficult colleagues or were in over your head and, you know, the whole fake it till you make it. Could you share a story with Java Junkies and more importantly, how you persevered, how you came through the other side? Yes. And it's, it's actually sort of recently in the past two years, we had a client. One of the things that we build ourselves as being able to do was create a website. And we had a client who is fortunately still currently our client who wanted a total website redesign. And it was really the first time in our business that we were going from the ground up, not just refreshing somebody's website, which we had done, but really starting all over. And I don't think that I realized what that entailed exactly. And we really, really got into a hole. And and essentially, um, we hired a website designer to work with us and put this whole thing together. And the client it wasn't good. I mean, the client didn't like it and it was not good. And it was so scary because a lot of money had been spent. I knew it wasn't good. They didn't like it and they were not going to give us a lot of money to fix it. We had to fix it, but without them spending a lot more money. And it was, I think it was, it produced the most anxiety of any one of almost any moment in my career. I really, really, really was was nervous, beyond nervous, terrified. And mostly I was terrified because I didn't think that I had the ability to fix it. I didn't think that I knew how to make it right. And all of these self-doubts just started creeping in. And it kind of took everyone around me, including the person who designed it, who said, we can fix this. We will know, we know how to fix this. You know, we may lose some money doing it, but 
we know how to fix it. We know how to make it right. And my business partner, who wasn't exactly involved in the process, it was really more my project, saying, think through this, step away from it, make a list, figure this out, be strategic. And my husband saying, don't panic. And and we did, and the site's it's fantastic. It's great. It turned out, but it was that absolute abject terror of thinking, I don't know how to fix this. And I think the lesson in that for Java junkies is to trust yourself. You have to you have to push yourself. And my first impulse was, and because I'm this kind of person, I'm kind of risk averse and I hate that feeling of feeling like I can't do something. My first impulse was, I'll never do this again. I'm never going to take on a project like this again. I don't know how to do it. But that's the wrong attitude. Your attitude needs to be, you've got to challenge yourself. You've got to say yes to things that are outside of your comfort zone. You may fail at first. You may ultimately fail, but... You've got to, you've got to go through this. You're not going to, you're not going to build your career and you're not going to build yourself personally if you don't take on these challenges. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. That must've been an incredibly frustrating, angst producing period, but I totally agree with you. When Java junkies find themselves in the midst of that kind of, oh my God, I'm so out of my depth. And this is so uncomfortable. If you can stay with it, almost like when you're in an exercise class or you're weightlifting and you're like about ready to drop whatever it is you're holding, if you can sink into it and like put your mind into that pain, you will come out stronger. You will come out stronger. And if you figure out how to break it into the component parts, like I was looking at it instead of saying, okay, I need to break the, here's what I need to do first. Here's what I need to do next. Here are the steps. I was looking at the end result and trying to imagine the end result. But at that moment, you shouldn't be imagining the end result. You should be imagining the steps that are going to lead you to the end result. And those are a lot more manageable. Definitely. Okay, final time for coffee question, Hope. If you could go back to Georgetown and do the college thing all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? That's a tough question because I think that I may have chosen, if I felt like I had the freedom to do it, I may have chosen a different major, but... I think that my major ultimately served me really well. So I don't know that I would have changed anything about that. But I think what I did, knowing that I wasn't fully committed to to that being my major, was take a lot of other classes in the things that I was interested in. And that, I just think that's really important. If you want to be a specialist at some point, you know, you will probably end up going to graduate school. So I think that that your undergraduate education is your is the time to really learn about the things that you feel passionate about and really learn about and explore the things that you just you just want to know more about and not worry so much about what career path it's leading you to because ultimately unless you're going to be a doctor, or unless you're going to be a lawyer, um, or I give even more specifically, unless you're going to be a doctor, and then you really need certain classes, 
there aren't that many fields where you have to, have to, have to follow such a prescribed curriculum. I think being an undergrad, it's a time for exploration because you're never going to have that again. I actually can add one thing to that, Hope, because my next interview is with a woman who is now a doctor and her undergraduate degree was in English. Oh, there you go. So there you go. I think what you have just laid out there is such fantastic advice to follow your interests, follow what makes you happy, and what are you good at? Yes. Play to your strengths. Hope, I want to say a huge time for coffee. Thanks for making time for coffee with me and the Java Junkie community. I wish you continued success at Soapbox Strategies. And just thank you so much for sharing your special sauce with us. Thank you so much. I was so glad to talk to everybody. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.